So we focus on the entire spectrum of road safety and safe systems is at the core of everything that we do. Safe systems is not just about education because we can't put the onus on the road user to do the right thing. It's mm -hmm. about making a whole system that has fail-safes and redundancies to protect us. So that includes infrastructure. Pedestrian bridges, to me, are vehicle infrastructure. They are not infrastructure mm. for vulnerable road users. We need infrastructure that separates people from cars. And more than anything, we need low speeds. They're scientifically proven to work. Hello, and welcome to The Bike Lane. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. With us today is Natalie Drayson, North American Director and the United Nations Representative for the FIA Foundation. Natalie leads global efforts to advance evidence-based solutions that improve public health through safe, sustainable mobility. At the FIA Foundation, she creates initiatives to fill gaps in the field. Leading road safety advocacy at the UN, she has engaged with over 100 missions and secured safe mobility as part of the Sustainable Development Goals to encourage the World Bank to require stronger safety measures in their $5 billion road safety funding. She garnered support from over 40 bipartisan U.S. representatives. Highlights of her initiatives include founding Vision Zero for Youth with the National Center for Safe Routes to School, now implemented globally through the Institute for Transport and Development Policy. During the pandemic, she published national guidance with the USDOT and international guidance with UNICEF and Save the Children about how students can get to school safely, avoiding COVID-19 and road traffic injuries. In 2021, Natalie was globally recognized as a remarkable woman in transportation by the Transformative Urban Mobility Initiative. She serves on various executive committees, boards, and panels, and has published peer-reviewed papers, op-eds, guidance, and reports. She has a BA, MPH, and MBA from Johns Hopkins University. Natalie, welcome to The Bike Lane. Thank you so much for having me, Jake. I really appreciate it. Well, it's exciting to have you on the show. Uh, I know our listeners are going to really love to hear the tie-in between what's happening locally and globally. And this is our first, uh, you're our first global guest covering such, such a wide range of topics. So before we get into all things safety, first, let's talk about your personal story. So how did you get into bikes and safety? And this is a really interesting space. We'd love to hear about it. Sure. Well, what got me into bikes was this crazy thing I did one summer where I biked across the country from Baltimore to San Francisco to raise money for cancer research. And I will say, by the way, if you're going to bike across the country, go the other way because there's less headwinds. But anyway... Um, that gave me a very up-close and personal perspective on what it means to be a cyclist in this country. And for anyone who's interested, I did it with what's now the Ullman Cancer Fund for Young Adults. It was a fabulous experience, and I would highly recommend it. But what got me into safety even before that was when I was in college, a friend was tragically hit and killed on, on the roads as she was walking to school. And in response to that, I just felt angry that it was a human rights violation, right? We all have the right to cross the street to get from point A to point B safely, nonetheless, to go to school. And um, I asked my professor that week, Jan Vernick, uh, who I'm still in touch with and who's still really a mentor to me, I, I said, you know, I want to build a pedestrian bridge from the dorms to campus, so no one has to cross the street. And he very diplomatically told me, listen, there's three reasons it's not going to work. First, the homeowners association won't go for it because pedestrian bridges are ugly, which is something I now understand. Second, um, 
the safest way has to be the easiest way, right? People don't necessarily want to go out of their way to cross the street using a pedestrian bridge. And third, public health is not about just making a change on one street corner. It's about widespread change for a whole population. So why don't you go and research the best way to prevent drunk driving and speeding? And um, then we can advocate for that, you know, on a statewide level and, and change the streets around campus, too, to make it safer for everyone. And I said, I got senioritis, right, going on a cruise next week. I don't know where to start. This seems like a lot. And he said, I, I, I will make time to help you. And that was life changing to me, this experience of making a coalition with Baltimore DOT and Hopkins and Matt and others to lobby and testify along with my friends for changes that would protect other students in the wider community as well. And I thought that road safety was a weird job that no one could actually do. So I went off and did a couple of other things, but then came back to it later because that's really where my heart is. I want to make sure that there's no other stories like that. Yeah. The challenge that I think a lot of folks that I ride with is very similar where they want to jump at throwing a immediate patch fix, but understand the intent and the behavior and, and going through a process where you can get community buy-in that's, um, uh, unfortunately it's a slow process, but, uh, we're chipping away and, uh, thank you for sharing that story. So let's, uh, let's, roll into a little bit about your role at FIA and the UN sounds uh, super cool and obviously global. So what, what is the FIA and, and why is there a focus around vulnerable road users, VRUs? So the FIA foundation focuses on safe and sustainable mobility. And we are here to fight not just the visible killers like roads, but also the invisible killers like air pollution. When it comes to the visible killers, we have 1.35 million people dying on our world's roads, and over half of global deaths are among pedestrians, cyclists, and motorcyclists, so vulnerable road users. Pedestrians and cyclists specifically make up about 26% of deaths, and in the U.S., bicyclist deaths have been on the rise for about a decade. We're at the highest number that we've seen since 1975. In 2021, 966 cyclists died. Those are 966 people who could have lived. We believe that each and every death is preventable. In fact, we know that this is the case because the safe systems approach proves it. Now, when it comes to the invisible killers, outdoor air pollution is one of the greatest environmental risks to health. And 25% of global greenhouse gases come from transportation. So how do we fix that? Well, electric vehicles is one way, sure, but we still have a congestion and safety problem. The cleanest form of transportation, not to mention the form that's best for our health, is walking and biking. And particularly for low-income folks who can't afford a car or who aren't served by public transportation, the ability to walk and cycle means connection to jobs and education and healthcare and just opportunity. Right. But so many people don't have that privilege. It's the lowest income folks who are suffering the most. In fact, 90 percent of crashes occur in low and middle income countries. And those areas, the low and middle income areas in the U.S. are hardest hit, too. They've been historically disadvantaged. 
So that's why we focused on vulnerable road users in this country and globally, whether it's Vision Zero for youth here in the U.S., or a recent study with ITDP and Global Cycling Cities campaign to show that protected bike lanes save money and they lower greenhouse gases and transportation costs and prevent fatalities compared to other infrastructure. We cover all of these areas and we believe in a world where nobody dies on our roads. Love it. We oftentimes in, in Detroit talk about Vision Zero and uh, the, the strive for preventable deaths. And I think that for organizational uh, priorities, a lot of our listeners are coming at the the safety from from our automotive community, from active safety and like Ford Collision Systems, ADAS, and and other types of of programs like this. So there's definitely some some feeling around preventable deaths that can happen by separation between uh, the different VRUs. And I always go back to our, our first guest, and, and we love her, uh, Noah Bonian, who used to be with People for Bikes. She just got a new gig, so congrats to her. Uh, she always talks about the, the most uh, valuable form of protection is still asphalt and concrete. And I, as a cyclist, I know it, I get it. But to your point, even just to kick off the show today, is that we can't put a pedestrian bridge everywhere for a variety of reasons, and we can't put protected concrete barrier bike lanes everywhere there's there's going to be moments where there's sharrows and even with greenways you're you're going to have what we used to have for last mile talking about for the last mile delivery for amazon will probably be last mile on on a a bike whether it's an e-bike or or an analog bike so there's a lot of those types of uh questions that kind of roll around so within the specifically within um, your role, are, are you mostly prioritized around infrastructure or behavior change, or is it kind of like a, or do you kind of touch those multiple facets for the visible vulnerabilities? So we focus on the entire spectrum of road safety, right? And safe systems is at the core of everything that we do. Safe systems is not just about education, right? Because we can't put the onus on the road user to do the right thing. It's mm -hmm. about making a whole system that has fail-safes and redundancies to protect us. So that includes infrastructure. And you mentioned pedestrian bridges. Pedestrian bridges, to me, are vehicle infrastructure. They are not infrastructure mm. for vulnerable road users. We need infrastructure that separates people from cars. And more than anything, we need low speeds. They're scientifically proven to work. Physics shows us that if you unfortunately hit someone going slower, they are more likely to survive that crash than if you hit them going faster. And that's particularly true for children. So we focus on, on the whole gamut. And we also focus on vehicle safety standards. There are too many countries in this world where people buy cars without seatbelts and airbags. And I know that might be shocking, to Americans because we're so used to it, but it's just not the reality. And our lives here are not more valuable than the lives of someone in a country where safety is not available to everyone, where it's not democratized, right? And even with mm. our own country, we have serious disparities. So our goal is that safety should not be a luxury. It should be a human right. I, I agree on, on democratizing safety and I, I see it. Uh, you know, I'm the I'm the lycra guy uh, going up and down with trying to stare at my watts and um, you know get my my Strava uh, PRs. 
one example that I, I really love is the uh, for pedestrians is the early and I, I, I forget the exact name for this, you may know, but like the, the name for when the crosswalk sign lights up before the, the vehicle traffic light turns green. Is it a hawk signal? Might be. I, it's basically it's it's the standard um, like like white walk versus red don't walk, but it, it turns on early. It gives that priority to the pedestrian when the, the walk sign goes f- from the red to the white walk mode. And what it does is it, it really tells that uh, the other drivers and, and all, all the people around the intersection that there is a priority given to the VRU. And uh, that's a systems thing. So I don't think that 99.999% of sober drivers would not uh, want to run somebody over on their bike or walking. But sometimes what happens is like I'll, I'll be approaching intersection and a vehicle's turning right. I'm going straight. The light turns green and the car just goes and they're not on the lookout and that the, I, there's it's a, a commonly referred to as a hook issue. But it's one thing if I'm rolling up in the green paint on a bus that's already moving. And then as a as a cyclist, I, it's it is on me and it shouldn't be, but it's on me to kind of recognize and just be a, another road user that like, hey, this is about to happen. And even though I have the right of way, I'm going to get run over by a bus. The issue I'm talking about that is like more more pressing is that. The, the driver sees me and he or she thinks that that they have the right of way just to turn right in front of me and don't think of me as uh, someone that, that has the right to continue going straight to that intersection. So like those kind of systems designs can certainly help quite a bit. But that like I, I love what you're saying about that. That goes along with having the education and access to those types of programs, because if it's not available in like a lot of the areas in Detroit, we don't have those more advanced traffic signals or another one is like we call them dead reds in the cycling community where you roll up to a traffic light the sensors that are in the roadways that won't pick us up as cyclists or pedestrians and we call those dead reds and um you're pretty much forced to have to go through it because it's just never going to turn green for you you know what you're talking about also is the difference between a speed limit sign or something that just suggests that we slow down right Mm. Don't suggest that I slow down. Please force me to slow down. We can't just leave it up to humans. We are prone to error. We don't always do the right thing. When I violate a traffic law or I behave unsafely, it's not intentional. And that's why we need an entire safe systems. We need infrastructure and policy and other components too to help guide us towards safe life saving decisions. We can't just leave it up to vulnerable road users. That's not fair and it's not effective. Yeah, agreed. And like it can't be on the VRUs, can't be on the drivers uh, or on uh, people that are working on on highways. I want to follow up on your comment about uh, force me to slow down. There, There is a lot of social concerns about dynamically controlling vehicle speeds that are driven by humans. If you get into an autonomous vehicle or semi autonomous vehicle, it makes a ton of sense, obviously, for all people of all ages. You mentioned about uh like as speeds increase, the likelihood of serious injury or death increases. That makes total sense. What I was uh, really early on in our work at Tome, now Valtech, what we found, which was fascinating, was we read that from USDOT that there's a sharp rise between serious injury at a collision speed of 35 miles an hour and up. So the the physics was really, while, while you're focusing on preventing these collisions from having in the first place, if we can reduce the actual impact speed to under 35 miles an hour, it's an improvement. So um, I, I think that the the key for us for a product and is like trying to look at the data to say, how can we 
reduce vehicle speeds, but also how can we like look at this as what really matters is the vehicle speed if there's going to be a collision. So the the fatality database called FARS, it, it's comprehensive, but we've always had some feelings there's opportunities to improve the accuracy and the insights that come out of it. And we start looking at if we can drive data-driven solutions in conjunction with behavior change and infrastructure improvements, then like that, that entire three-pronged uh, approach is going to make the improvements. So I, I wanted to just kind of give you a, a, a kudos for mentioning about uh, the impact speeds and, and dropping it down. And um, I think that we're seeing a lot of this now. Uh, the first thing that we've seen in the last year is the work zone data exchange, WCDX, which shows active work zones, dynamic speed limits. And there's been tests here in Michigan and all over the US with uh, state DOTs deploying this work zone data exchange. And I'm very optimistic that that type of work with a standard that everybody can in the tech community and the business, everyone in the business community, including tech, can participate with. That's that's great. Again, that's just one of those three buckets that that we're kind of seeing. So I I like uh, I, I like how you're bringing that approach for not putting this on the VRU while most of uh, our listeners are thinking about this is from a from a tech and a, a, a perspective and a policy perspective. So thinking of it more on the, the human side is is well engaging, I guess I, I'd say. Yes. Controlling speeds is where it's at. So when you are hit by a car going 40 miles an hour, it's like jumping off a five story building. Kids are even more vulnerable given not only their size and fragility, but also the fact that we often can't even see them over the hood of a car. My four-year-old, who's pretty tall for his age, comes up to the wheel well of my neighbor's obnoxiously enormous Hummer, right? That neighbor can't see my kid, period. Now, safe systems is something that can account for that. There's historical alignment between the decade of action and the National Roadway Safety Strategy. And we're very happy to see this because we advocated with Hopkins and with ITE for safe systems to be in, in the national strategy. Now we're working with two communities, East End District in Houston and Blackfeet in, Nation in Montana to implement SS4A funding. And I wanna mention this because these are two historically disadvantaged communities with large populations of vulnerable road users. And there's some tools that we're using with them that might be of interest to your listeners. So one is IRAP Star Ratings for Schools, and you can get that online. And it measures the safety of infrastructure on a one to five star scale, and it suggests improvements. We're also going to implement the Traffic Conflict Technique Toolkit, which you can find online for free on our website, childhealthinitiative.org. We created this with CDC and CDC Foundation to measure near misses around schools, preventing the crash before it happens. Because as you're saying, data sometimes is a problem, right? But we don't need to wait to collect the data. We know where it feels unsafe as cyclists and pedestrians. We know where we have near misses. So we need to not only measure the safety of infrastructure, but how people behave with that infrastructure to make sure it's conducive to safe behavior. Because again, the safest way has to be the easiest way. And a focus on safe road users is crucial, especially for VRUs. We do not have to wait for the data to be there. We can do something to prevent the crash. But I do understand that we need the data sometimes to get the funding to make the change, right? So this is a way to collect observational data, prove that it's a problem, 
and prevent crashes before they occur. So uh, that that's great. I, I think that when we talk about the safest way is the easiest way, and as we start to get into kids, um, and you know, the, it's 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 awesome. I feel like in addition to increasing safety for children, which everyone's going to get behind, right? No, I mean, everyone's behind that. I think there's also like a great social entry point for if we're doing it for the children and then we roll it out for everybody and the adults with it, uh, that I feel is a great place to start. It's a beachhead for for changing the conversation at a DOT or your, your local government. So You've done a lot of work with uh, the National Association of City Transportation Officials regarding safer streets for kids. And I know there's a new guide out there. What are some of the key contributions? So like you're, you're, you've got this, this plan and we're working on improving safety and there's this process, but then there's the execution. And uh, I know NACTO is one of those uh, uh, places where we can provide that those tools for, for education and then implementation. So love to hear about the safer streets for kids and and the guide that's uh, that's going on there. I love that you call starting with children a beachhead. That is a perfect word. You know, children are the natural place to start because not only are road traffic injuries the number one cause of death for young people ages five to twenty nine around the world. It's also just it, it's. Children are a politically less contentious place to start, right? And when you think about your community, your city, if you draw a radius around a school of, let's say, a mile or two, you do that around all the schools, you'll see those areas start to overlap. And so by starting with children, you are covering the whole community. Everyone feels safer. Now, the the guide you mentioned, NACTO's guide, is something that I dreamed up with my very good friend, Ankita Chatra, who worked with NACTO, which is now GDCI, Global Designing Cities Initiative. They branched off. Um, and she now works with Capita. And so this was, the, the Streets for Kids guide was a natural follow-up to NACTO's Global Street Design Guide but it was focused on making places safe and healthy and comfortable and convenient for kids and their caregivers. Because as a mom pushing a stroller, nursing, I can tell you that sometimes I need a place to sit. And at night when I'm walking to the metro, I need paths that are lit up. Otherwise, I'm not going to use them, right? And so it's very easy to sit in a lovely park in New York City as we did and dream up this idea, but it's a lot harder to actually make it come to fruition. So fortunately, we had the right partners. NACTO was excellent. And with the Bernard Van Leer Foundation, Bloomberg Philanthropies, Botner Foundation, and of course, FIA Foundation, we all provided support for this guide. The guide has tools and strategies and street design examples and case studies from around the world of communities for all sizes for readers to adapt it to local contexts. And it provides recommendations and guidance. Very importantly, it shows that whatever stage you're at in the design process, whatever your resources, again, whatever your community size, there are ways that you can make it safer for children and for the entire community at large. Excellent. Excellent. So what are you seeing on the horizon? Where are we going from here for with, with the kids and safety? I'm cautiously optimistic. 
that we're going to see more walking and cycling to school. We did a poll by YouGov, and it shows that there is actually global demand for this. Almost three quarters of people globally support physical changes like closing roads and limiting traffic and reducing speeds to protect children. And three and five are worried about air pollution, as they frankly should be. Since I started this job eight years ago, I have seen more demand in the U.S. And most importantly, a much better understanding of safe systems. Very few people in this country were familiar with safe systems when I began. And now it's at the core of our national strategy. Every year, for example, more and more communities are hosting walk, bike, and roll to school day. And that's done by our partner, National Center for Safe Routes to School. In fact, this past Wednesday, October 4th, we celebrated Walk, Bike, and Roll to School Day. But if you didn't celebrate, don't let that stop you. You can celebrate all month. And frankly, you don't need a special month to celebrate. Just walk and bike and roll to school, right? I consider myself pretty dialed into the cycling community uh, locally as well as nationally. I'm, I'm a frequent visitor like five times a day. I'm a bike groomer and I'm like a Strava guy and I'm, I'm like I, I th I'd like to stay up on just about everything proud supporter of our Misco Scholastic Racing Association and and show prep you, you mentioned to me in, in an earlier email about bike bus and I, I was like kind of skimming through it I'm assuming that meant oh we're going to put money to put uh, bike bigger bike racks on the buses because there's only two bikes on the front of a Detroit bus so I googled it last night and oh my gosh it is incredible it is the cutest coolest thing i've ever seen and i was like just total face melter for me watching uh i picked up a couple youtube videos uh out of a thing in oregon and another one in california and wow like having a bunch of school children with some ride leaders and going through i was like i'm in and i feel like again back to the beachhead is if we showed that video on on like if we ran ads on all the social medias of like that video of like what you can do to get kids safely to school i mean it's it's just so amazing and um brought a smile to my face and i think that's uh that's the kind of that, that that's just ingenious programming and the the support was i couldn't believe the support that was there because i I can tell you, like this time of year, uh, a few weeks back in the fall when the kids are going back to school, I've noticed over the years, I mean, school's been around, at least in my area for, I'm assuming, um, 40 years plus, the uh, drive ups and the uh, adjacent neighborhoods were never intended to have 150 uh, vehicles parked with uh, parents waiting for their kids to drop off. And like you said, like they're, they're probably pretty close by for these elementary schools, especially so now I'm seeing residents putting cones out in front of the ends of their driveways to uh, help inform uh, parents that are doing pickup that, that, that they shouldn't be double parking into their, the back ends of their driveways. I'm thinking, man, if, if we just had the bike bus in Detroit, we'd be, we'd be rocking. It'd be Motor City Bike Bus. I'd, I'm, I'm all for that. Thank, <laughs> thank you for, for forcing me to Google that. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, it just made my, my week. Oh, thanks, Jake. I, I'm so glad you looked it up. For anybody who's listening, again, not driving, not biking, maybe not walking, just Google Sam Balto and look at <clears throat> look at his Twitter, look at his link tree. He has fabulous resources to do this. I really see this as a very exciting moment where Sam's work is just the crest of a tidal wave. 
right? So here's the background on the bike bus. Okay. The idea of the bike bus is, is not new. From Bogota to Barcelona, it's been done for years. Our partner, World Resources Institute, did Al Colegio in BC, um, which is the bike bus, and Siempes, or the walking school bus. What this is, is a responsible designated adult takes kids to school on a, hold on. What this is, is a planned route where a responsible designated adult leads kids to school walking or biking. And they get the energy out, they connect with the community, and they arrive ready to learn. And particularly for parents who might struggle to get to school safely or on time or at all, frankly, this can be a game changer. So Sam Balto has done this in the U.S. and he is leading the movement. And my goodness, he has quite the TikTok following. He's like TikTok famous, okay? I have colleagues who... Like you Googled it, but their kids are already like, oh, yeah, I saw Sam on TikTok like a while back, right? They already know what's him. What's TikTok? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's some sort of clock. I don't know. I encourage you to follow him and because your, your kids already probably have. And check out his very helpful resources. Look at his videos. Like you said, they are the most heartwarming thing you're going to see today, maybe this week. And they have millions of views. So it's a bunch of happy kids riding to school or walking to school, rain or shine, with totally appropriate music like, you know, Crazy Train by Ozzy Osbourne, because let's be real, that's what it is when you go to school. Um, key to Sam's success is that he really has his finger on the pulse of the community. And what he realized is that it's the white suburban parents like me who have time to organize walking and cycling school buses. It's not the lower income folks in disadvantaged communities who are time and resource poor, but who also need these walking and cycling school buses the most. And critical to rectifying this dynamic was a bill that he spearheaded to allow school districts across Oregon to have more flexibility with how they spend their state transportation dollars, letting them organize things mm -hmm. like bike buses and walking school buses in addition to traditional buses and carpool lines. And districts can actually request reimbursement for alternative transportation options like crossing guards or coordinators to lead mm -hmm. these walking and biking buses. So this bill would have the greatest impact on those households that don't own a vehicle and that live close to their schools, too close for a bus route, right? I predict and I want to help support that more communities will find ways to flex their transportation spending to support walking and cycling school buses. And this is not just about walking and cycling school buses. This is not just about, you know, national walk, roll, and, and bike to school day, like I mentioned before. It's about a wider safe systems strategy. Both of these things link very perfectly to Vision Zero for Youth, which we started in 2016 with National Center for Safe Routes to School. And what Vision Zero for Youth does is it encourages cities to prioritize safety improvements where youth need or want to walk and bike. They're getting involved in engaging elected officials to make policy changes. They're gathering community input on needs. And in some instances, even making changes to streets themselves. 
Vision Zero for Youth has been a valuable way for us to learn about exceptional practices by cities, prioritization of projects, quick build projects, systemic changes in community engagement. And we've seen this work, not just in the U.S., but in wider Latin America. Bogota, Colombia has 8 million people, but they have had months with zero child fatalities, and they celebrate those months. And when those numbers tragically tick back up, they figure out what they need to do to bring them down. So you can do this in your community. You can set this goal and you can reach zero deaths among children. So there's something on the horizon. If you want to apply, please check out visionzeroforyouth.org. I would love to hear from your community. I love the the story around the kids. And then to um, bring it back up on kind of one wrap-up point on, on safety topics is uh, again, back to the beachhead for kids and then promoting, obviously at a social level, we've got uh, an education opportunity that in 40, 50 years from now, we can change the the feeling around road equity between the different road users. And for any, any of the cyclists listening, we know that the old get on the sidewalk uh, routine, and that's a social thing we can change. And if you teach a younger generation, you have it. But then also you're talking about redesigning intersections and then garnering support. And um, I think there's the more that existing drivers, humans are going to be seeing people on bicycles, people walking as a norm that that starts that starts to change the expectation. And um, I I've I've read I mean, this this is all part of the complete package for improving safety. And I, I didn't know about the the international pieces as well. As Americans, we can, I and we can be a little thick-headed sometimes. And, and we try to just say, well, we, we will innovate. We will solve this. And this is America. And especially in Motor City, we are Motor City. We are cars. And trying to take other, other countries' learnings, especially from countries that haven't always been, in at least my opinion, kind of rub it in our face that they're safer and better, and just saying like, hey, here's what works. I feel like the the cycle, like the reactionary cycle of our country needs to improve. And it's it forget about what the ultimate changes in concrete asphalt, electronics, vehicle design, you name it. I mean, whatever that is, we just need to we need to go faster. Like we need to pick up the pace for when we see a problem, we need to we need to go through it. Just like my C click fix app I use locally to get a tree out of there in a day or two, which used to be weeks. We need we need that for for safety, and um, that's that's kind of an insight I pulled from from what you guys are seeing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm laughing when you mentioned we need to do things faster. So, an anecdote: I have the privilege of traveling to see the good work of our partners around the world, and I once went to a Bijan where we were doing a project with our partner, Amend, a fabulous organization that I encourage you to Google. And it was essentially safe systems around the school, right? Sidewalks, bollards, speed cushion, crosswalk. CDC has actually researched this project and seen that it decreases injuries by 25%. So it really works. Now I got there early in the morning, and I see this tired crew furiously painting the crosswalk and finalizing the bollards in front of the school. And I said, my goodness, you all, you all look exhausted. How long have you been doing this? And they said, oh my goodness, we spent the night here 
We've been working on this furiously for two weeks so that you guys could come and, you know, cut the ribbon today. It's just been such a long process. And I said, really, how long has it been start to finish? It has been so long, they said. It has been three months. Nice. Come on. <laughs> it's, it's all relative. There are so many fast, low-cost things that we can do. Right? Yeah. I have been through the roads of rural Senegal where I see communities taking baobab tree trunks cut in half to make a speed hump and then putting old car tires on either side of the tree trunks so that motorcycles can't drive on the sidewalks around them, right? There are really low-cost things we can do really fast. Bucket of paint. Yes, paint is a suggestion, but it is better than nothing, mm -hmm. and it doesn't take very long to do it. There's temporary things that I would encourage everybody to do. And there's, there's just... When you look abroad, it's beyond Scandinavia, right? Vietnam, through our partner Asia Injury Prevention Foundation, has done an incredible job and now has 30-kilometer-an-hour school zones nationally. In Rio, ITDP, our partner there, is implementing bike lanes to increase safe routes to school and access to green spaces and multi-purpose centers and open streets because it's about a whole community and livability. And the project's even going to include playful elements and resting areas. Who doesn't want that, right? When, when you have that, the whole community feels safer and, frankly, just more fun. Mm. Yes, there are great examples in, in Europe. So London, school streets, fabulous. Roads outside schools are just closed to vehicles. You, remember people, you mentioned people putting traffic cones out in your own community, right? Put those traffic cones in the road so that you just have the road in front of the school just closed to vehicles. Kids feel more confident. They don't have to wait for a bunch of cars to cross the street. The whole community benefits. It reduces congestion and air pollution. We actually launched an air quality testing program to show that there's a positive impact on air quality. And the mayor of London says the results are going to show how much of a difference this initiative makes. I was in France this past summer where my family lives. And in Paris, you've got 20 mile an hour school zones. But there's examples in the US too, right? So if you look at uh, the Vision Zero for Youth site, you'll see the award winners everywhere from New York, the obvious one, to Philly, to Lincoln, Nebraska, where we're doing a great job around schools. Um, Hoboken in New Jersey has 15 mile an hour school zones. I applaud you. New York City has school speed safety cameras that had an average of 30% decrease in, in speeding. So there are things that we can do. There are examples from across the country and across the world. And there's lots of little islands of success. We just need a sea of change. Many of our listeners are coming from the automotive community or are working on policy in a non-automotive community uh, for legislating or providing guidance to the automotive community. Uh, what are you seeing uh, for how your work streams would affect or influence automotive both here or abroad? So the automotive industry has an absolutely crucial role to play in protecting our vulnerable road users. Pedestrian deaths are skyrocketing in this country, as you know, right? They're up 77% from 2010 to 2021. I don't volunteer my child to be a statistic, and I know no one listening does either. So the automotive industry can, and frankly should, be a leader. We know that there's a link between car size and severity of a crash. 
And I know that it's really hard to address that from a business perspective because SUVs make up over half of the market share. But remember, though, that nobody wants to be behind the wheel of a killing machine. Along with decreasing car size, there's lots of things that you can do to protect pedestrians. And you can see these things on the Euro NCAP site under vulnerable road user protection, like autonomous emergency steering to avoid a crash with a cyclist or pedestrian, pop-up bonnets, or external airbags. I applaud NHTSA, by the way, for following Euro NCAP's lead and proposing that all new U.S.-sold vehicles adhere to the pedestrian standards of the Euro NCAP. We need a pedestrian safety rating. I certainly want that when I buy my next car. But automakers don't have to wait for NHTSA. They can be leaders and they can leapfrog. Listen, it's coming anyway, right? We tend to follow Europe's lead. So this summer, for example, I sat in the backseat of a car in France without my seatbelt on. I was going to put it on, just hadn't yet. And it beeped at me. And when I got back, NHTSA proposed a seatbelt warning expansion. So it's coming. Get ahead of it. And for commercial vehicle folks, you have an incredible opportunity to keep your employees safe and also help technologies reach economies of scale so they are affordable to the general public and just mandated in cars in general. So I consult with DADS, the Driver Alcohol Detection System for Safety. It's a passive breathalyzer in cars. You just breathe, and if you're drunk, either you're notified or you can't drive. I'm helping with their deployment strategy. And fleets are key. They're a great opportunity. Employers don't want employees to be inebriated, right? And the only employees that would even notice the technology is the ones that shouldn't be driving anyway. You could even put this technology outside a warehouse or a secure workspace. My goal is that by the time that my kids are driving, this will automatically be in their cars. If every car in the U.S. had this today, we would save 10,000 lives annually. Before we wrap up, I always like asking our, our guests, uh, for our listeners' sake, what, what kind of podcasts, newsletters, trade events uh, keep you in the know, uh, personal or professional, that you could share? And we'll put all this in the show notes. Um, I love the PBIC newsletter. They have a great roundup of events and research that is always really interesting to me. Um, NACTO is a fantastic conference. They have workshops, which are really fun because, look, no one wants to sit in a windowless conference room and listen to PowerPoint, right? Best way to learn about a city, get out, walk, cycle, talk to the DOT. That's how we learn. There's a lot of that at NACTO. Um, our partner at GDCI, again, formerly part of NACTO, talked about the Streets for Kids guide in the latest episode of um, the Mobility Podcast. And so she's presenting on the Streets for Kids guide. I would definitely encourage you to listen. Anna Spirakova, she's fantastic. Shift is a good podcast about mobility. Um, and on a personal note, I love the podcast Wiser Than Me with Julia Louis-Dreyfus. She interviews famous older women who have truly lived, lived far beyond their years and have real advice to give. We could all use some perspective and life advice from older, wiser women who are often sadly invisible in society, but have so much to offer. Okay, great. So Natalie, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, definitely different dynamic than we have and one that is well needed. And I look forward to having you back. And thank you for all the, the hard work that you and your organizations have been doing and, and supporting the UM. 
And that was Natalie Drazen, North American Director and United Nations Representative for the FIA Foundation. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time in the bike lane.